Chapter Seven, Part One of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Harris. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume One: The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova, Episode One: Childhood. CHAPTER Seven, PART One. The fort, in which the Republic usually kept only a garrison of one hundred half-paced Glavonians, happened to contain at that time two thousand Albanian soldiers, who were called Samariotes. The Secretary of War, who was generally known under the title of Sage à l'Écriture, had summoned these men from the East in consequence of some impending promotion as he wanted the officers to be on the spot in order to prove their merits before being rewarded. They all came from the part of Epirus called Albania, which belongs to the Republic of Venice, and they had distinguished themselves in the last war against the Turks. It was for me a new and extraordinary sight to examine some eighteen or twenty officers, all of an advanced age yet strong and healthy, showing the scars which covered their face and their chest, the last naked and entirely exposed through military pride. The lieutenant-colonel was particularly conspicuous by his wounds, for, without exaggeration, he had lost one-fourth of his head. He had but one eye, but one ear, and no jaw to speak of. Yet he could eat very well, speak without difficulty, and was very cheerful. He had with him all his family, composed of two pretty daughters, who looked all the prettier in their national costume, and of seven sons, every one of them a soldier. This lieutenant-colonel stood six feet high, and his figure was magnificent, but his scars so completely deformed his features that his face was truly horrid to look at. Yet I found so much attraction in him that I liked him the moment I saw him, and I would have been much pleased to converse with him if his breath had not sent forth such a strong smell of garlic. All the Albanians had their pockets full of it, and they enjoyed a piece of garlic with as much relish as we do a sugar-plum. After this none can maintain it to be a poison, though the only medicinal virtue it possesses is to excite the appetite, because it acts like a tonic upon a weak stomach. The lieutenant-colonel could not read, but he was not ashamed of his ignorance, because not one amongst his men, except the priest and the surgeon, could boast greater learning. Every man, officer or private, had his purse full of gold. Half of them, at least, were married, and we had in the fortress a colony of five or six hundred women, with God knows how many children. I felt greatly interested in them all. Happy idleness! I often regret thee, because thou hast often offered me new sights, and for the same reason I hate old age, which never offers but what I know already, unless I should take up a gazette but I cared nothing for them in my young days. Alone in my room I made an inventory of my trunk, and having put aside everything of an ecclesiastical character, I sent for a Jew, and sold the whole parcel unmercifully. Then I wrote to M. Rosa, enclosing all the tickets of the articles I had pledged, requesting him to have them sold without any exception, and to forward me the surplus raised by the sale. 
Thanks to that double operation, I was enabled to give my Sclavonian servant the ten sous allowed to me every day. Another soldier, who had been a hairdresser, took care of my hair, which I had been compelled to neglect in consequences of the rules of the seminary. I spent my time in walking about the fort and through the barracks, and my two places of resort were the major's apartment for some intellectual enjoyment, and the rooms of the Albanian lieutenant-colonel for a sprinkling of love. The Albanian, feeling certain that his colonel would be appointed brigadier, solicited the command of the regiment, but he had a rival, and he feared his success. I wrote him a petition, short but so well composed, that the secretary of war, having inquired the name of the author, gave the Albanian his colonelcy. On his return to the fort, the brave fellow, overjoyed at his success, hugged me in his arms, saying that he owed it all to me. He invited me to a family dinner, in which my very soul was parched by his garlic, and he presented me with twelve botargos and two pounds of excellent Turkish tobacco. The result of my petition made all the other officers think that they could not succeed without the assistance of my pen and I willingly gave it to everybody. This entailed many quarrels upon me, for I served all interests, but, finding myself the lucky possessor of some forty sequins, I was no longer in dread of poverty, and laughed at everything. However, I met with an accident which made me pass six weeks in a very unpleasant condition. On the 2nd of April, the fatal anniversary of my first appearance in this world, as I was getting up in the morning, I received in my room the visit of a very handsome Greek woman. She told me that her husband, then ensign in the regiment, had every right to claim the rank of lieutenant, and that he would certainly be appointed if it were not for the opposition of his captain, who was against him, because she had refused him certain favors which she could bestow only upon her husband. She handed me some certificates and begged me to write a petition which she would present herself to the Secretary of War, adding that she could only offer me her heart in payment. I answered that her heart ought not to go alone. I acted as I had spoken, and I met with no other resistance than the objection which a pretty woman is always sure to feign for the sake of appearance. After that I told her to come back at noon, and that the petition would be ready. She was exact to the appointment, and very kindly rewarded me a second time, and in the evening, under pretense of some alterations to be made in the petition, she afforded an excellent opportunity of reaping a third recompense. But alas, the path of pleasure is not strewn only with roses. On the third day I found out, much to my dismay, that a serpent had been hid under the flowers. Six weeks of care and of rigid diet re-established my health. When I met the handsome Greek again, I was foolish enough to reproach her for the present she had bestowed upon me, but she baffled me by laughing, and saying that she had only offered me what she possessed, and that it was my own fault if I had not been sufficiently careful. The reader cannot imagine how much this first misfortune grieved me, and what deep shame I felt. I looked upon myself as a dishonored man, and while I am on that subject, I may as well relate an incident which will give some idea of my thoughtlessness. Madame Vida, the major's sister-in-law, being alone with me one morning, 
confided in me in a moment of unreserved confidence what she had to suffer from the jealous disposition of her husband, and his cruelty in having allowed her to sleep alone for the last four years, when she was in the very flower of her age. "'I trust to God,' she added, "'that my husband will not find out that you have spent an hour alone with me, for I should never hear the end of it.' Feeling deeply for her grief, and confidence begetting confidence, I was stupid enough to tell her the sad state to which I had been reduced by the cruel Greek woman, assuring her that I felt my misery all the more deeply, because I should have been delighted to console her, and to give her the opportunity of a revenge for her jealous husband's coldness. At this speech, in which my simplicity and good faith could easily be traced, she rose from her chair and upbraided me with every insult which an outraged honest woman might hurl at the head of a bold libertine who has presumed too far. Astounded, but understanding perfectly well the nature of my crime, I bowed myself out of her room, but as I was leaving it she told me in the same angry tone that my visits would not be welcome for the future, as I was a conceited puppy unworthy of the society of good and respectable women. I took care to answer that a respectable woman would have been rather more reserved than she had been in her confidences. On reflection I felt pretty sure that, if I had been in good health, or had said nothing about my mishap, she would have been but too happy to receive my consolations. A few days after that incident I had a much greater cause to regret my acquaintance with the Greek woman. On Ascension Day, as the ceremony of the Busan Tower was celebrated near the fort, M. Rosa brought Madame Oreo and her two nieces to witness it, and I had the pleasure of treating them all to a good dinner in my room. I found myself, during the day, alone with my young friends in one of the casements, and they both loaded me with the most loving caresses and kisses. I felt that they expected some substantial proof of my love, but, to conceal the real state of things, I pretended to be afraid of being surprised, and they had to be satisfied with my shallow excuse. I had informed my mother by letter of all I had suffered from Grimani's treatment. She answered that she had written to him on the subject, that she had no doubt he would immediately set me at liberty, and that an arrangement had been entered into by which M. Grimani would devote the money raised by Rosetta from the sale of the furniture to the settlement of a small patrimony on my youngest brother. But in this matter Grimani did not act honestly, for the patrimony was only settled thirteen years afterwards, and even then only in a fictitious manner. I shall have an opportunity later on of mentioning this unfortunate brother, who died very poor in Rome twenty years ago. Towards the middle of June the Samariotes were sent back to the east, and after their departure the garrison of the fort was reduced to its usual number. I began to feel weary in this comparative solitude, and I gave way to terrible fits of passion. The heat was intense, and so disagreeable to me, that I wrote to M. Grimani, asking for two summer suits of clothes, and telling him where they would be found, if Rosetta had not sold them. A week afterwards I was in the Major's apartment, when I saw the wretch Rosetta come in, accompanied by a man whom he introduced as Petrillo, the celebrated favorite of the Empress of Russia, 
just arrived from St. Petersburg. He ought to have said infamous instead of celebrated, and clown instead of favorite. The major invited them to take a seat, and Rosetta, receiving a parcel from Grimani's gondolier, handed it to me, saying, I have brought you your rags, take them. I answered, Some day I will bring you a regano. At these words the scoundrel dared to raise his cane, but the indignant major compelled him to lower his tone by asking him whether he had any wish to pass the night in the guard-house. Petrillo, who had not yet opened his lips, told me then that he was sorry not to have found me in Venice, as I might have shown him round certain places which must be well known to me. "'Very likely we should have met your wife in such places,' I answered. "'I am a good judge of faces,' he said, "'and I can see that you are a true gallows-bird.' I was trembling with rage, and the major, who shared my utter disgust, told them that he had business to transact, and they took their leave. The major assured me that on the following day he would go to the war office to complain of Rosetta, and that he would have him punished for his insolence. I remained alone, a prey to feelings of the deepest indignation, and to a most ardent thirst for revenge. The fortress was entirely surrounded by water, and my windows were not overlooked by any of the sentinels. A boat coming under my windows could therefore easily take me to Venice during the night, and bring me back to the fortress before daybreak. All that was necessary was to find a boatman who, for a certain amount, would risk the galleys in case of discovery. Amongst several who brought provisions to the fort, I chose a boatman whose countenance pleased me, and I offered him one sequin. He promised to let me know his decision on the following day. He was true to his time, and declared himself ready to take me. He informed me that, before deciding to serve me, he had wished to know whether I was kept in the fort for any great crime, but as the wife of the major had told him that my imprisonment had been caused by very trifling frolics, I could rely upon him. We arranged that he should be under my window at the beginning of the night, and that his boat should be provided with a mast long enough to enable me to slide along it from the window to the boat. The appointed hour came, and everything being ready I got safely into the boat, landed at the Sclavonian quay, ordered the boatman to wait for me, and wrapped up in a mariner's cloak I took my way straight to the gate of St. Sauveur, and engaged the waiter of a coffee-room to take me to Rosetta's house. Being quite certain that he would not be at home at that time, I rang the bell, and I heard my sister's voice telling me that if I wanted to see him I must call in the morning. Satisfied with this, I went to the foot of the bridge and sat down, waiting there to see which way he would come, and a few minutes before midnight I saw him advancing from the square of St. Paul. It was all I wanted to know. I went back to my boat and returned to the fort without any difficulty. At five o'clock in the morning every one in the garrison could see me enjoying my walk on the platform. Taking all the time necessary to mature my plans, I made the following arrangements to secure my revenge with perfect safety, and to prove an alibi in case I should kill my rascally enemy, as it was my intention to do. The day preceding the night fixed for my expedition, I walked about with the son of the adjutant Zen, 
who was only twelve years old, but who amused me much by his shrewdness. The reader will meet him again in the year 1771. As I was walking with him, I jumped down from one of the bastions and feigned to sprain my ankle. Two soldiers carried me to my room, and the surgeon of the fort, thinking that I was suffering from a luxation, ordered me to keep to bed, and wrapped up the ankle in towels saturated with camphorated spirits of wine. Everybody came to see me, and I requested the soldier who served me to remain and to sleep in my room. I knew that a glass of brandy was enough to stupefy the man, and to make him sleep soundly. As soon as I saw him fast asleep, I begged the surgeon and the chaplain, who had his room over mine, to leave me, and at half-past ten I lowered myself in the boat. As soon as I reached Venice, I bought a stout cudgel, and I sat myself down on a doorstep at the corner of the street near St. Paul's Square. A narrow canal at the end of the street was, I thought, the very place to throw my enemy in. That canal has now disappeared. At a quarter before twelve I see Rosetta walking along leisurely. I come out of the street with rapid strides, keeping near the wall to compel him to make room for me, and I strike a first blow on the head, and a second on his arm. The third blow sends him tumbling in the canal, howling and screaming my name. At the same instant a forlorn, or citizen of Forley, comes out of a house on my left side with a lantern in his hand. A blow from my cudgel knocks the lantern out of his grasp, and the man, frightened out of his wits, takes to his heels. I throw away my stick, I run at full speed through the square and over the bridge, and while people are hastening towards the spot where the disturbance had taken place, I jump into the boat, and, thanks to a strong breeze swelling our sail, I get back to the fortress. Twelve o'clock was striking as I re-entered my room through the window. I quickly undress myself, and the moment I am in my bed I wake up the soldier by my loud screams, telling him to go for the surgeon, as I am dying of the colic. The chaplain, roused by my screaming, comes down and finds me in convulsions. In the hope that some discordium would relieve me, the good old man runs to his room and brings it, but while he has gone for some water I hide the medicine. After half an hour of wry faces I say that I feel much better, and, thanking all my friends, I beg them to retire, which everyone does, wishing me a quiet sleep. The next morning I could not get up, in consequence of my sprained ankle, although I had slept very well. The Major was kind enough to call upon me before going to Venice, and he said that very likely my colic had been caused by the melon I had eaten for my dinner the day before. The Major returned at one o'clock in the afternoon. "'I have good news to give you,' he said to me with a joyful laugh. Rosetta was soundly cudgelled last night and thrown into a canal. "'Has he been killed?' "'No, but I am glad of it for your sake, for his death would make your position much more serious. You are accused of having done it.' "'I am very glad people think me guilty. It is something of a revenge, but it will be rather difficult to bring it home to me.' "'Very difficult. All the same, Rosetta swears he recognized you.' and the same declaration is made by the foreland who says that you struck his hand to make him drop his lantern. Rosetta's nose is broken, three of his teeth are gone, 
and his right arm is severely hurt. You've been accused before the Avigator, and M. Grimani has written to the war office to complain of your release from the fortress without his knowledge. I arrived at the office just in time. The secretary was reading Grimani's letter, and I assured His Excellency that it was a false report, for I left you in bed this morning, suffering from a sprained ankle. I told him likewise that at twelve o'clock last night you were very near death from a severe attack of colic. Was it at midnight that Rosetta was so well treated? So says the official report. The war secretary wrote at once to M. Grimani and informed him that you have not left the fort, and that you are even now detained in it, and that the plaintiff is at liberty, if he chooses, to send commissaries to ascertain the fact. Therefore, my dear Abbe, you must prepare yourself for an interrogatory. I expect it, and I will answer that I am very sorry to be innocent. Three days afterwards a commissary came to the fort with a clerk of the court, and the proceedings were soon over. Everybody knew that I had sprained my ankle. The chaplain, the surgeon, my body-servant, and several others swore that at midnight I was in bed suffering from colic. My alibi being thoroughly proved, the avigator sentenced Rosetta and the foreland to pay all expenses, without prejudice to my rights of action. After this judgment, the major advised me to address to the Secretary of War a petition which he undertook to deliver himself, and to claim my release from the fort. I gave notice of my proceedings to M. Grimani, and a week afterwards the major told me that I was free, and that he would himself take me to the abbey. It was at dinner-time, and in the middle of some amusing conversation, that he imparted that piece of information. Not supposing him to be in earnest, and in order to keep up the joke, I told him, very politely, that I preferred his house to Venice, and that, to prove it, I would be happy to remain a week longer, if he would grant me permission to do so. I was taken at my word, and everybody seemed very pleased. But when, two hours later, the news was confirmed, and I could no longer doubt the truth of my release, I repented the week which I had so foolishly thrown away as a present to the Major. Yet I had not the courage to break my word, for everybody, and particularly his wife, had shown such unaffected pleasure, it would have been contemptible of me to change my mind. The good woman knew that I owed her every kindness which I had enjoyed, and she might have thought me ungrateful. But I met in the fort with a last adventure, which I must not forget to relate. On the following day an officer, dressed in the national uniform, called upon the Major, accompanied by an elderly man of about sixty years of age, wearing a sword, and presenting to the Major a dispatch with the seal of the war office, he waited for an answer, and went away as soon as he had received one from the governor. After the officer had taken leave, the major, addressing himself to the elderly gentleman, to whom he gave the title of Count, told him that his orders were to keep him a prisoner, and that he gave him the whole of the fort for his prison. The Count offered him his sword, but the major nobly refused to take it, and escorted him to the room he was to occupy. Soon after, a servant in livery brought a bed and a trunk, and the next morning the same servant, knocking at my door, told me that his master begged the honour of my company to breakfast. I accepted the invitation, and he received me with these words. 
"'Dear sir, there has been so much talk in Venice about the skill with which you proved your incredible alibi, that I could not help asking for the honour of your acquaintance.' "'But, Count, the alibi being a true one, there can be no skill required to prove it. Allow me to say that those who doubt its truth are paying me a very poor compliment, for—never mind, do not let us talk any more of that, and forgive me, but as we happen to be companions in misfortune, I trust you will not refuse me your friendship. Now for breakfast.' After our meal the Count, who had heard from me some portion of my history, thought that my confidence called for a return on his part, and he began. I am the Count de Bonafide. In my early days I served under Prince Eugene, but I gave up the army and entered on a civil career in Austria. I had to fly from Austria and take refuge in Bavaria in consequence of an unfortunate duel. In Munich I made the acquaintance of a young lady belonging to a noble family. I eloped with her and brought her to Venice, where we were married. I have now been twenty years in Venice. I have six children, and everybody knows me. About a week ago I sent my servant to the post-office for my letters, but they were refused him because he had not any money to pay the postage. I went myself, but the clerk would not deliver me my letters, although I assured him that I would pay for them the next time. This made me angry, and I called upon the Baron de Taxis, the postmaster, and complained of the clerk, but he answered very rudely that the clerk had simply obeyed his orders, and that my letters would only be delivered on payment of the postage. I felt very indignant, but as I was in his house I controlled my anger, went home, and wrote a note to him, asking him to give me satisfaction for his rudeness, telling him that I would never go out without my sword and that I would force him to fight whenever and wherever I should meet him. I never came across him, but yesterday I was accosted by the secretary of the Inquisitors, who told me that I must forget the Baron's rude conduct, and go under the guidance of an officer whom he pointed out to me, to imprison myself for a week in this fortress. I shall thus have the pleasure of spending that time with you." I told him that I had been free for the last twenty-four hours, but that to show my gratitude for his friendly confidence I would feel honoured if he would allow me to keep him company. As I had already engaged myself with the Major, this was only a polite falsehood. End of chapter 7, part 1